Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Clifton Corbin, and Clifton describes himself as a financial literacy advocate. We'll let him explain what that means to him in just a minute. Clifton and I actually met at a wonderful conference called FinCon. This conference, if you're not familiar with it, is for financial content creators, people that are money nerds, self-described money nerds, right? Uh, Clifton and I are definitely money nerds. We had wonderful conversations while we were there about money, about life, about religion. Uh, So who knows what may come up on this wonderful podcast episode, but we're also going to have a chance to hear about his journey and story of writing his first book. Is that right? Your first book. That's my first. Won't be my last. (laughs) First, but won't be the last. You heard it here. Your kids, their money. So we've got a lot to cover. Corbin, welcome to the podcast. Or Clifton, I said, silly me. Here we go. That's all right. That's all right. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm super excited to continue our, our conversations. Absolutely. Well, tell everyone that's listening, how did you become a financial literacy advocate and what the heck does that mean? <laughs> sure. So my journey started when I was uh, a, a young money nerd. So when I was a kid, I was super curious about money. I was very keen on earning money. So, you know, I had all those first jobs, you know, the paper route, the lemonade stand. Um, I, my dad was at the time for a short period, he owned an auto shop. So he helped me build a little oil business. So I would buy the oil wholesale and sell it retail. So instead of an allowance, I got a dividend check. So, you know, at a very (laughs) early age, money was very much a driving force in my life. Um, but then I went off to university and I did what so many young people do is I got those early credit cards, but I didn't know what I was doing with my credit card. I didn't know how to manage it. I used it to buy, you know, consumable goods that made no sense. You know, it started off with, this was for emergencies and then quickly spun into, well, an emergency is anytime I don't have enough money to buy a round of drinks. So it, you know, it got bad really quick. Um, you know, I ended up paying, you know, the minimum balance on one credit card with, you know, a cash withdrawal from another credit card. So like I said, it got bad. Um, I got out of university. I fixed my debt problems. You know, I paid off my debts. I started working on my credit score. Um, but when I finally had a chance to kind of reflect on what happened, I, I asked myself, like, how, how did someone who was so money curious as a youngster still make so many money mistakes as a young adult? Um, when I reflected on that, I said, okay, the, the, the challenge is there's a lack of knowledge. There's a lack of education for kids, young adults, and parents for that matter, um, to understand what financial literacy is and actually learn those concepts, learn those skills at an early age before uh, you know, you're off on your own and you need to use them. So that's kind of what brought me uh, on this journey. And you asked, you know, what is a financial literacy advocate? Well, that's what I try to do. I try to let folks know, you know, the importance of financial literacy. I try to introduce some of those early concepts and I try to make sure that, you know, 
especially young people, like I said, kids, young adults and parents have the resources to start understanding what the concepts are and have some of those early conversations with their kids so that they could start, you know, building those habits. Wow. What an incredible journey. So young entrepreneur, father owns an auto shop. It was his own auto shop. Yeah, so he was a he is he uh, is a teacher, but for a point he left teaching and started up a auto shop. Uh, he was a mechanic. His trade uh, when he immigrated into Canada was mechanic. So he started as a mechanic, got into teaching, left teaching for a period, started a shop, went back to teaching. So that was kind of his journey. Uh, and in that somewhere in there, I got into the auto shop, and I was like, okay, there's there's opportunities to be had here. Oh my gosh, my head is spinning. I just am loving, I want to know more and more about this particular story. I love stories and this is what a cool story. So your father immigrated from where to Canada? So both my parents are originally from Trinidad and Tobago, a small uh-huh. island off of Venezuela. Um, uh-huh. So they came, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s to Canada. So I'm in Canada right now as I speak to you. So they came here, as I said, my dad was a tradesperson. So that's kind of how he came. But he's always been an academic. So he used, the, he used the trade as his means to get, you know, further his opportunity. So he came as a tradesperson, but he's always been an academic. Like he started his... PhD, I think three or four years ago while he was in his seventies. So he's always been an academic looking to, you know, aspire more, more and more so in that, in that world. Did I just hear you right? Your dad is in his seventies and going for his PhD. That's right. So he's right now, his, like I said, he's always been in the, he's always straddled the world of trade and academia. So his focus is on helping uh, trades people or teachers who teach the trades become better teachers because he straddles the world so well, he's able to, you know, relate uh, with the folks who teach trades and the folks who are in the trades. And he's also an academic. So his focus has always been trying to help trades people or trades teachers become better teachers. I am beaming with joy and pride for your father. <laughs> like I've never met the man, but like just knowing you, I can imagine what an incredible guy he is like this. And that straddler term is one that I've heard before as I've read books on crossing social class lines. And this, that's immediately what my brain goes to. But we can really straddle a lot of different environments. And when we can do that, what a gift it ends up being for the people we work with. So let's make it about you. I mean, your dad's incredible. And I would love to hear more dad stories for sure. I'm sure the listeners do. But Corey, you had a career before you became a financial literacy advocate. So what was your career before that? Sure. So, you know, I'm similar to my dad in that, like I started as a computer technician. Um, I was, you know, in addition to being very money curious, I was also, you know, it's the nineties. I was like very interested in computers, but I went into uh, a computer engineering undergraduate degree and ended up leaving uh, that degree with, like I said, a ton of debt and mm. not many career prospects just because it happened to be right when the tech bubble burst. So that was great timing <laughs> for me. Um, so I worked as a computer technician as I got my MBA. Um, uh. So thinking, okay, I'll go into business. Uh, so I worked 
got my MBA and finished my MBA right when the housing bubble burst. So I've got great timing for a degree. So I, for everyone's benefit, I'm going to avoid taking any other uh, degrees for the time being. <laughs> thank um, you. We thank yeah. you for doing that. <laughs> but eventually I landed uh, into, I became a business analyst, which is another one of those uh, roles where you kind of straddle two worlds. So business analyst kind of straddled the tech world with the business world, which was a wonderful role for me because it kind of married my two passions. But then I moved in to project management and then into business, uh, sorry, and then into more of a financial analyst project management role. So right around the time I left the workforce, um, I was in kind of a financial analyst project management role where I was managing, you know, multi-million dollar budgets, uh, which was great. But then, you know, our family started and my wife and I always said, you know, we wanted one of us to be home. We we often joke that it was kind of a race to the bottom. We always said, whoever's making the least amount of money gets to stay home. So, you know, but at the in full honesty, we already, we always knew it was going to be me just because of my, not because I'm the not able to make money, but because I'm more of the entrepreneur in the family. So we knew even if I was home, I'd be able to come up with some something to do to keep myself busy potentially raise some more revenue for the family. So uh, before I I left the workforce, I, my roles were business analyst, financial analyst, project management, business consultant. Wow. So introduce us to your wife. Tell us, who, what's your wife? What's, what's her name? What kind of work sure. does she do? What's she like as a person? She's a phenomenal person. Uh, her name is Kelly. Uh, she's currently working in the insurance industry. She's also had, you know, her journeys. She's gone. She started actually in uh, biotech. So she started uh, actually making viruses. It's a, it's a great story to tell at parties how she used to work with like HIV and SARS and all of these crazy viruses. And then somehow through her uh, doing, I met her while I was doing my MBA. And then she went from, you know, the biotech into um, banking, specifically into auditing. Uh, and her journey has kind of gone from auditing into finance and now she's back in auditing. So she's kind of gone, she's had her own journey and every step of the way just kind of growing and growing and finding more and more mentors who are willing to lift her up because she's you know one of those super hard working like i've always said like when i launched my business she'd be the first person i'd hire because she's one of those people who can do anything will do it well will do it with a smile on her face and just like crush it so she's one of those super high achieving type people so again another reason why we knew she would be the one who would have to stay in the workforce because i'm I'm the contrarian in the family. Like <laughs> the idea of working for somebody else is, you know, it's a necessary evil in my mind, but it's never something that I was, you know, keen to do. Um, whereas for her, it's not so much uh, a necessary evil. It's an opportunity to excel. So we just see, you know, work very differently or at least who we're working for very differently. So she's been able to find her, uh, her footing really well in, every company that she's worked for, uh, but specifically the one that the insurance company she's in now she's doing, she's doing wonderful. That's incredible. So can I ask, I mean, this is the healthy love and money podcast. So can we ask a few questions about your marriage and Kelly and money conversations and what that's like at home? Go for it. As soon as I say, I'm like, well, what, what question do I want to ask? <laughs> uh, I have so many questions, but like, what's the conversation around the, the, where do you guys talk about money and career decisions? Where's the most common place in your house that you're doing that? So big life decisions, we always joke, are made in the ocean. 
So, you know, when <laughs> okay. we decided. Didn't yeah, see that coming. Yeah, okay. no, coming from our field here. Um, whenever we've had, like, the big, like, should we have kids? Should we have another kid? Should, you know, what about our home? Should we buy a home? So, for some reason, we always seem to be in an ocean. I don't know. The, the, the freedom but, of like, responsibility. Are you swimming around, splashing in yeah, the ocean? Yeah, usually just, like, relaxing in the ocean on a vacation. Always on a vacation. We don't live anywhere near an ocean, so it's always on vacation. But I think it's that... Uh, that clarity of mind and that, you know, we don't have the stress of, uh, everyday life, uh, weighing on us. So it's just a little bit easier to, you know, approach those conversations, but the everyday money conversations, you know, there's no set place. We don't, we don't typically like sit at the the dining room table. We're, we're on the couch. We're chatting. Um, I've spoken with you, uh, about how some of those conversations can be challenging for me, uh, because of all the financial struggles I've had in my life. Um, uh, whenever it comes to budgeting, it's never, I still have quite a bit of anxiety uh, built up over uh, talking about money and about budgeting. Um, anytime we need to make, you know, a big financial purchase, and there's always tension there. Um, yeah. You can probably just hear it in my voice, even just talking about it. Uh, we just, I, I was just joking the other day, like our fence uh, needed to be replaced. It was leaning so much. It looked more like an awning than a fence. Uh, so it needed to be redone. And, you know, it's not a small purchase. It's, you know, it's, it's yeah. a big outlay of money. Sure. Um, and I basically said, I was like, it has to get done. I'm never going to, I don't think I'll ever get comfortable spending large sums of money. It's just not something I, I enjoy doing. I'm the saver planner. She's more of the spender. And, you know, if we had to talk about the spectrum of where we all are. Um, so it, it wasn't, I feel bad in that. Like I probably made something that she was really excited about because, you know, taking care of the home, not so much taking care of the home, but the aesthetics of the home, making sure it's a warm, comfortable place for the family is something that she, she values. Um, I do too, but probably not to the same level as she does. So I know I didn't make that experience of getting this thing that she's wanted for so long, a pleasant one for her, just because my feelings about money are always not about money, but about spending lots of money often come out very negative. So, um, your original question of where we talk about it, it's, you know, we're in the house, we're, we're lounging on the couch. Um, but how we talk about it, it's usually, you know, it's usually a bit of a buildup because I think, well, I know yeah. she knows my anxieties come out when we're talking about money. So in addition to the fact that the conversation is usually not a pleasant one for her or for me, um, we'll probably put it off more than we need to just because mm. it's something that we're both trying to avoid. So, yeah, like I'm happy talking about money with almost everybody, but once it comes down to like my budget and like, again, those big outlays of money. And like I said, we've got two kids at home. They constantly need stuff like, you know, it's yeah. win winter is coming. If I can quote the Starks. So, you know, boots, uh, snow pants, jackets, these things aren't cheap. Um, you could find them secondhand, but even then, you know, then you're spending extra time looking for them. So it's hard to manage, uh, a budget when you've got lots of, when you've got kids at home who are like, they just demand money. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's no other way around it. They do. Right. I mean, I mean, at that very intellectual level, the economists have studied what's the average cost of raising a kid, right? And it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, especially in affluent families over the, the lifetime. And so, yeah, but there's also all these deeper psychological, emotional, meaning-based. And Israel will say, your family is mm, highly educated and makes a good overall living. 
I would say so. I would. I we are definitely comfortable, like with my wife's income and the little bit that I'm able to make, plus the you know a little bit of rental income we have coming in. It's we're good. We're financially we're there's nothing that we're 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 missing. Maybe a, a few more vacations here and there would be nice, but it's like the needs are all the needs are met. So if if I try to use that as my baseline, like we're fine. We don't uh, we don't need anything. So do you have a sense for where your money anxiety comes from? Are there experiences that you can point to that you're like, this is because it's not, you know, it sounds like when you're in your business mind, you're making business decisions for the organizations. No problem. Nope. Does, it's not really a source of anxiety or, or anything. You can see the picture, you can see the numbers clearly. And it's like, yeah, this is what we should do. This is how much. Yep. But then when it comes to just even starting to consider spending money for your offense as one example, the anxiety, the tension in your back starts to come up. Yeah. It, it, I, I think it all stems from just knowing, like I talked about how I got into financial trouble. Yeah. What I didn't talk about is getting out of that financial trouble. Ah. That was like getting into it was kind of fun. I'll just be honest. <laughs> like, it was just spending. Yeah. I was like, man, I want to be Clifton's friend back in the day when he's like, on my card next yeah. round. No, it's yeah. uh, getting into the trouble was was fun. It was willful willful ignorance that I wasn't paying attention to what was going on around me, and I, I didn't do the things I needed to do to you know put the brakes on and stop my spending. Getting out of the financial troubles, getting out of debt, that's when things got really bad. So, you know, I had debt collectors calling me. I had and just to back it up a bit, I mentioned how after I finished my my undergraduate, I went back into. Um, tech support partially because you know like i said the bubble had burst and i needed to start you know making some money to pay off these debts so i went into i went into tech support but i ended up doing um help desk so i was on a phone so one of my credit one of my uh, debt collectors got my phone number you can't avoid a phone call from a debt collector when your job is to answer the phone like it's just you can't you can't get around it so now my debt collector is calling me and this one, I you know, I had a few, but this one was unscrupulous. Like she talked about, like telling my employer how I'm like a deadbeat. Like she, she was basically, you know, um, threatening and 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 berating me in an effort to get her get me to pay. The worst part is, like I had already made a commitment to pay at that point, um, and if anything, she was just jeopardizing the potential for me to pay. But as a debt collector, that was what she thought she needed to do. Um, so. I bring this up just to highlight the fact that when I was trying to get out of debt, I was not in a happy place. Like all of the stress and anxiety and potential depression that I felt then comes back to me when I start thinking about having to spend lots of money because it was spending money that got me to that place. So I'm sure I'm just, you know, mm. making the, the mental connections that spending causes, you know, stress depression, anxiety. Um, and it was by not spending, it was by, you know, saving and by being very diligent and very careful with the money I had once I started working that got me out of it. So anytime I find that we're spending, especially if it doesn't feel like we're spending with a plan, like it's like, I'm fortunate enough that we've been able to build up emergency funds. So even when, you know, an emergency happens, it's not like I'm using my credit card to get us out of that spot. Like I'm 
I advocate for financial literacy. I also live the things I advocate. So we have the emergency uh, fund and we will use the emergency fund when necessary. But I still feel that um, that little that little, I don't know, tingling feeling of, wow, I'm spending and I know what happens when I spend too much. So I'm sure it's just that that connection being made. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. It is 100% that connection being made, right? This is the deep psychology. And this is where I think you know, my area of specialty is the financial therapy space. And how do I help people heal from past financial experiences psychologically so that they can be free to experience the full financial experience, right? And if you're having that fear, anxious, shame response around any side of of your money journey, there's usually that deeper story connected and and you're sharing that. And I really appreciate that. I know there's going to be so many people that hear this and that have had that experience of the debt collectors calling and threatening. And that is psychologically threatening and psychologically abusive, Right. I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Wow. I'm taking a deep breath, you know, and I would just even ask the listeners to take a moment and just kind of notice what's going on with their body as they're hearing this, because this is really emotionally charged stuff. And Clifton, I really honor you and in, in your vulnerability to share your personal story, because I know there's so many people that have a variety of uncomfortable emotions associated with past decisions. And um, it is a lot to work through and trying to get that relief. So I'm even curious what it'd be like for you to just roll your shoulders a little bit and just notice what that feels like to have shared this story kind of publicly, but in the privacy of a, of a podcast interview, like nobody else is directly watching us, but. So when I decided that I wanted to, help people avoid some of the mistakes I made when I decided that, yes, you know, financial literacy advocacy is something I wanted to do. Well, a few things going back again, I I've talked about doing something like that for years, for years Mm -hmm. and years. I talked about it. Um, and then I was having lunch with a good friend of mine and I was talking about the stuff I was working on. It wasn't anything to do with financial literacy. I was talking about it. Um, and then, I mentioned how, you know, at some point I might want to do something with this. And he, he immediately looked at me as like, you have to, he's like, he could tell the energy. Like I was excited. Like he could tell that that was where my passion lay. He's like, stop that other thing you're doing. It doesn't like, sure. It might make you some money, but it's not going to fill your cup. He's like, you need to focus on, you know, the financial literacy piece. Cause it's what, it's what energizes you. And I remember, you know, I started all this whole journey started with a blog. Uh, it's still the blog I, I blog on today, cliftoncorbin.com. Um, so I started blogging and I knew I had to like 
tell people. I had, like a blog is great, but if you're not telling anyone it exists, you're probably like it's the internet. No one's gonna find it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so and as I'm a like, computer scientist, you you really understand that in I, a way I that it. I don't. Yeah, I get it. Right. So I was like, I have to tell people what I'm doing. So I'm like, okay what's the platform where I have the most connections? So I went onto Facebook and I wrote a post about what I was doing and why. So it wasn't nearly as in depth as what I just told you, but it was basically the high level of what I just told you with regards to my financial challenges as a, as a young adult. And I remember my finger hovering over that send button mm. for so long because mm -hmm. up until that point, you know, other than my my family and, and my, my wife, no one really knew that side of me. Um, you know, like that happened when I was in my early 20s. And like, fast forward, this is, I'm talking about this would have been in like my late 30s or 40s when I was thinking about publishing this blog. So I was like, no one knew that part of me. I, the only way anyone would ever know that is if I said it. But right. I also knew, one, it's something I wanted to do. And two, I also recognize, as I think you do, and it's obvious from your your podcast that it's only by sharing these stories as traumatic as some of them are as as um as painful as some of them are it's only by you know letting other folks know that you know they're not alone like what they're going through is similar to what you have gone through and if anything they can see that you know wherever they are it's a point in time and they don't need to stay there uh it's only by sharing that that I felt like I could really help. So you're asking how it feels to tell this story. It, it's, I, you know, I go right back to that place whenever I have to say it, but it's easier now than that first time I published that Facebook post because I've had enough conversations now where I can see the value in telling this story. Um, I, I don't, I still don't enjoy it because it was a painful time, but I recognize that, you know, one, it helped me get to where I am today. So I had uh, some high school students that I was speaking with a while back. They asked, like, do you regret the decisions you made? And, you know, I come from that uh -huh. philosophy of like every decision I made got me to where I am. So I don't necessarily regret it. If I could do it again, I wouldn't. But I don't necessarily <laughs> regret it because I am where I am because of it. Uh, and I tell it because I know I believe it can help. Um, so how do I feel giving that story? I still feel uncomfortable. I still feel anxious. I still feel, you know, like it is, it's a very personal story and it, it shows me at one of my weaker points uh, with regards to the decisions I, decisions I made, but I think there's a lot of value there. So I tell it willingly because I hope it could help. Like if, it, if there's one person who hears it and it's like, I'm in that spot and there is this person who was there and who is no longer there. That's if that can motivate them to take the actions when, you know, speaking with someone like yourself or a financial planner or picking up a book or whatever it is, whatever they use to help them move from wherever they are to get to wherever they want to be. If I can help, you know, be the catalyst for that, then I'm, I'm fine to tell the story over and over again. Wow. If your heart is not warmed by hearing that, I don't know what will warm your heart. But Clifton, the the passion and energy that I hear, and I couldn't agree with you more that telling our stories and and the vulnerability of telling our the vulnerable parts of our story is really challenging and still uncomfortable. And yet, there's something empowering in telling the, that part of our story in the right context and the right time uh, with the right people, where the story is going to be honored and and heard uh, with respect and dignity. 
sadly, there's so much money shaming in our society that it makes it hard to share these stories in a way that really is redemptive and helpful for the individual that's gone through it, as well as uh, the people that need to really actually hear that message. And I do think from a healing perspective, telling our stories in a safe and constructive way allows us to get more depth and richness and also to start to see the story from a different vantage point, right? The, the way we see ourselves and can understand ourselves from a greater place of maturity, often we can start to extend grace and forgiveness back to this younger version of ourselves who was financially immature, did not have full financial literacy. And, you know, I think that's what's so interesting too is, it's not like you didn't like money and you weren't interested in it. No, you were really actually very interested in, in it. And I would say even a student of money it's at one level. But this is that place where I think financial literacy um, really strikes towards trying to get a comprehensive education or a foundational base of knowledge. And unfortunately, as children, our natural curiosity is a wonderful thing and we want to leverage that around money. But we don't have enough perspective to know all the different domains of money that we really need to explore. So we just explore whatever we find. And so someone like yourself who's like, okay, now I've got my MBA. I've done a lot of reading. I understand the foundations of personal finance. Like once you study, it's like, oh, okay, this is manageable. Here's the, the body of knowledge. Let me transfer this to people in a more systematic way. And so Corbin, you... Why am I? I'm using your last name. That's okay. I, I go by both, so it works for me. My brain, the, the neural pathways <laughs> made that connection. I blame my neural pathways. I take responsibility for my neural pathways. But they, <laughs> they get the best of me sometimes. Uh, Clifton, uh, you wrote your book, "Your Kids, Their Money." Can you walk us through your book a little bit and how that's helping you accomplish your mission of financial literacy advocate? You, you, you've kind of nailed it just with what you said there. So as I said, I look back at like my, my curiosity as a kid and I was also lucky in that my parents were willing to talk to me about money. So when I talked to them, when I asked them like, how do I make more money? You know, the, the idea of like the oil business or the, the paper route or whatever, that all came up. So earning money felt pretty good there, but it was only like one way of earning money, like trading your time for money. It was the only thing we talked about when asked, you know, what do I do with money? You know, we talked about saving, put our money in the bank. We, we never got into investing. We, we didn't really get into wealth creation. We never talked about taxation. We didn't talk about insurance. We didn't talk about, as you said, the breadth of knowledge around financial literacy. So that is what, what I'm trying to do with my book is to give parents that full picture of how they can talk to their kids about all the different pieces of financial financial literacy. So it's not just about, you know, earning or it's not just about what to do with your money when you get some. It's, you know, what do your children need to learn so that once they're out of their home, once they're no longer, you know, right beside you, they're capable of managing their money in uh, an efficient and effective way. Now, I know, you know, trying to teach kids can be a challenge, like, you know, telling them one thing one time likely won't stick. So I try to give, you know, different resources in addition to like my book. So in my book, it has different resources, uh, games you can play, books you can read uh, with your kids, uh, different activities you could do. So I'm trying to give, you know, like I said, the tools, the tips, the resources. And I tried to write my book uh, to serve two purposes. So you could 
you could, you know, if your child's asking you about something or there's something that came up in a conversation and you're like, you know, how do I talk to my kid about inflation or, you know, what do we, mm. what do I need to talk to them about when we talk about, you know, why we give or should I say we don't have enough or what, you know, you can go to those sections and you could read that section and get a quick win and go back to your child. But I also, because as you've identified the, the, st- narrative stories have so much more value than a lesson. I tried to write my book with a lot of my personal stories, some of which you've heard, a lot of which you haven't, but I tried to write it with my stories. And if you read it cover to cover, it kind of goes along that same journey that I've gone along. So it starts off with, you know, my curiosity as a youngster and like, you know, how to acquire money and what to do with it gets into, you know, what can happen with debt and, you know, how you talk to a child about credit card and how a credit card's like a short-term loan. It gives you the tools and tips to like start an allowance practice. Uh, but then it kind of ends with, you know, where I am now where it's, I'm really trying to give back. So I talk a lot about gratitude and appreciation and how that also needs to be a part of financial literacy because we can't just be talking about more and more consumption. It also has to be about how we give back and show appreciation and, and and value the things that we have as you asked at the beginning all my needs are met but i can i i can articulate that because i know the difference between a need and a want so i have that also as part of the book so that our kids are getting that concept as well so you know you can jump in at any one section and you can use it as a resource mm-hmm. or you can read it end to end and it really should or i hope it will give you like that whole picture of you know how i started uh, kind of like how I started and, and then how, where I am now. So, but the, the intent of the book is really to be that, that resource guide, that, that, um, that tool that you can use and go to as you need it to help your kids become financially literate so that they are, you know, fully capable of managing their money in an efficient way once they're out of the home. I love that. You know, the, the word that's coming to my mind is ambassador is certainly, or advocate is great, but I was thinking about ambassador too another a word right it's like you're you're kind of an ambassador into the money world it's like hey welcome to the world of money let me show you around over here we have spending over here we have insurance over here we have taxes so on and so forth and it's i don't know i'm coming up with this fun idea in my head like money is a theme park like let's like instead of letting money be the scary onerous topic if we can think about it as like going to the theme park and we're going to ride these different rides and each one has its own twist and turns to it and pleasures and scare points, but like, let's go do it. Let's go be in the money theme park. What, what do you think? What do you think about that? You're in my head. Um, I think I mentioned to you uh, before we started recording that I'm looking at doing an event, but it's going to be an event for families and it's going to be similar, similar idea where it's really about giving kids opportunities to, I'm using air quotes here, play in a theme park type space where they're learning as well because it's you know we need our kids to have opportunities to learn about money in fun engaging ways so my goal with my first book i'm about to release another book shortly uh and this event is to really give as many resources and methods uh to help parents get this concept get these concepts into their kids i'm also working on a tabletop game so i'm trying to like as a parent, I know, you know, there's no one method that works for all children. Like it just, that's not a thing. There's no one method that works for all people. So I'm really trying to come up with multiple different methods that all focus on the same subject, all focus on financial literacy, but you know, 
going to an event might be a lot more fun than, you know, playing a board game, but maybe playing the board game is a little bit more fun than reading a book. So I'm working on as many different ways as I can, because I really like you, you use the word passion earlier. Like I am very passionate about this and I want to make sure that, you know, whatever I can do to help that next generation I have done. So I see it also as, you know, both passion and both my attempt at leaving, you know, a legacy and making sure that when I am no longer here, whatever remains is helping to make that next generation or the generation after that even more prepared for whatever lies ahead. Well, I can just affirm you that just in knowing you and is like, reminds me, I, I want to pull out your book again <laughs> and look at it with my kids to get some fresh ideas. Cause you know, I spend so much of my time thinking about how to help adults with their, their pain around money and healing it psychologically that there is still so much. And I, I don't want to be the cobblers, um, with those shoes for my kids. Like, and so the, what I, what I want listeners to leave this with, and I'm going to ask, so what's the title of the next book? When's it going to be live? And how can people find you so that they know that they got an incredible person in their corner that's going to give them some guidance? So the next book is actually a remake of an old book, and I'm probably sure you know it. So have you read The Richest Man in Babylon? I have, yes. Years and years. I mean, decades ago, probably decades, at this point. Exactly. So it's for for your listeners who might not be familiar with it, it was a book written in 1926. Um, it's wonderful in that it's a bunch of short stories that all that teach personal finance, that teach financial literacy. Um, I tried reading it to my son. My son's 10. And I got like maybe a page or two in and I looked at him and his eyes were just glazed over. He's like, I don't know what any of this is. It just didn't, it didn't hit. And it's one of those books that I think so many people in the, uh, in the personal finance space recommend, but at the same time, I don't know how many of us have gone back to it from the lens of how does this read from someone who's not in the personal finance space? So when I looked at it from that lens, from my son's purview, I was like, this doesn't, doesn't work as well as I thought it did. So what he and I did, because the book is over a hundred years old, the copyright has written, run out, we rewrote it. So I would read a little bit of it to him. If his eyes would glaze over again, I'd be like, okay, rewrite that. And we would go back and forth until he was like, no, I get it. You want me to, I should be saving before I spend. I was like, okay, he gets it. So we went through the whole book um, and revised it. So we've revised it uh, to be a lot more easy to read. Uh, a lot more inclusive. So the first version, every pronoun was a he or a him. Um, so, you know, if I was reading it to my daughter, I don't think she would see herself in, in it. So I've tried to make it much more inclusive. So no matter who you are, you know, however you identify, hopefully you see yourself in that book, either as um, someone who's learning or someone who already has learned and is teaching, which is another reason why I, I identify so much with this book. It's one of my favorite books. And it was only recently that I recognized that what I love about the book is that it comes from a place of teaching. Like it's not about the richest man in Babylon becoming richer. It's about the richest man in Babylon sharing what he's learned so that the people around him also become wealthy. So we revised it. It's now the richest person in Babylon and it's going to be released, um, in end of November of 2022. So it'll be on Amazon. It'll be, uh, it'll be, for now, just on Amazon. Let me start with Amazon. Um, it'll be, I'm hoping, a nice, new, fresh version of an old story that I hope will also live for another hundred years. 
Holy smokes. What a way to end this conversation. That was a cliffhanger. We're going to have to, I'm going to have to do something on the front end <laughs> to prime, like listen to the end because I, I'm, I'm flashing back to being, I think 26 working at a, my first financial services job. That was one of the top books recommended to read. Still is. Right? It is. It's that it is a timeless book. And yet you brought the same messages, but into today's vernacular is what it sounds like. And also approachable for kids that are 10 years old. Yeah. So, I, you know, the terms, the concepts that are raised, they work for anyone. Like it, does, it doesn't matter who you are. Like you should always be paying yourself first. You should always, you know, make sure that you're protecting your wealth, what have you. But I wanted it to be something that someone who's in grade five could read and understand, but wouldn't, you know, be so simple that someone who is, you know, a high school student or a young adults or, you know, yourself or myself couldn't read. So it's, you know, it's easy to read, but I don't think the concepts have been, you know, brought down at all. So, so that's the book that's coming out now. My current book is available on audible it's on uh, almost anywhere you can get a book so Barnes and noble amazon uh so that's your kids their money uh if you're looking for me my blog is still active it's still very uh it's still happening uh that's cliftoncorbin.com um and i just released a workbook uh for kids uh from like grade three like grade one to grade three with some play money in there it's a free workbook you could just go to my site cliftoncorbin.com workbook and you could download that for free like i said i'm just trying to find as many ways as I can you know get this stuff out there so you can get the workbook at any time I am beyond grateful for your time this has been such a joy to have you on and we'll definitely have to have you back in the new year to talk about how the book the richest person in the Babylon is going and to spread the word and get people out there and man the search criteria I bet it's just gonna be off the chain because that <laughs> book gets searched oh brilliant brilliant businessman Corman Thank you, uh, Corbin. Uh, brain, come on, help me, brain. <laughs> Clifton, thank you so much for your time and generosity of spirit. I can't wait to talk again. Ed, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for this podcast. Like I said, when you already introduced us as meeting at FinCon. Your engagement and interaction with you was one of the highlights of my trip. I'm so glad that I was able to connect with you. I'm so glad that I was able to come on your show and hopefully add some value to your audience. And I'm so grateful that you're doing this podcast, um, you know, dealing with money and relationships is such a challenge. So having someone like you out there to help uh, is so, so appreciated. So thank you for what you're doing. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Take care. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed. Mm-hmm.